Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. Joining us today on Banter is Colin Duick, who's a visiting scholar here with us at AEI, where he focuses on the connection between U.S. national security strategy and party politics, conservative ideas, and presidential leadership. He's also a professor in the School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where he's the faculty advisor for the Alexander Hamilton Society. A senior non-resident fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, he's also served as a foreign policy advisor on several Republican presidential campaigns. Thanks for joining Banter, Colin. Thank you. It's very great to have Colin today, Phoebe, because I view him as someone who really sees the various divisions in conservative foreign policy thinking and can explain it well. And since I'm, you know, I'm here at AI and I have those divisions in conservative foreign policy <laughs> thinking operating all around me every day, yeah. I need to get a little time with Colin to just sort of set myself so I can feel a little more comfortable. So Colin, you know, you've written about this topic of conservative nationalism, and you've written about the divisions within Republican Party foreign policy. Let's just start with that first term, conservative nationalism. What is it, and what is it about it that challenges what was more, in the more last 50 years, the more typical foreign policy position of people on the right? Thanks, Robert. Well, at the broadest level, I think that it's just uh, respect for U.S. national sovereignty. I mean, there's a tradition going back to the founding that was nonpartisan of emphasizing that the U.S. is an independent country and that, you know, you're not looking to submerge your sovereignty into international institutions. So that's, that's, I think, a legacy, particularly on the Republican or the conservative side in the 20th century, because it's challenged by, by liberals and progressives like Woodrow Wilson. So in a way, it's an older tradition that sort of sticks around in, in some ways. And what but I it also, when you say that it's challenged by liberal traditions, and you mentioned Democrats, it also challenges the globalist, or the, as you know, Jonas is globalist, whatever he <laughs> says, but the international, the Nixonian, we want to be a, a, a active in the world. We want to engage with our allies and counter our adversaries and, and not be isolated. Isn't there, an, is there a little tinge of isolationism in conservative nationalism? Well, there's definitely a, an emphasis on not intervening in peripheral cases, there can be. I mean, versions of it are, I would say, flat-out isolationist. But the point you're making, which I think is right, is that there's a strain in the Republican Party, especially beginning in the 1940s, of really conservative internationalists who, or, who take the lead and keep winning the Republican Party's presidential nominations, starting with Wendell Wilkie and Thomas Dewey and Dwight Eisenhower. And they set the tone at the top for this notion that the U.S. is going to be engaged. It's going to have bases and alliances and trade agreements overseas. And they kind of run the show for decades. And one of the things that was so interesting about Trump is he challenged that. I mean, like nobody we'd seen since the 1930s and he won. So that was, that was shocking. But I do think if you, if you do a little more granular investigation of some of these Republicans like Eisenhower or, or, or Nixon, I mean, they, they did have some appreciation for the sheer breadth of the party and for the fact that there are some grassroots conservatives who actually don't have much use for, say, the United Nations. But they, but they are on board for hardline policies against specific adversaries like the Soviet Union or like Al-Qaeda under George W. Bush. And I think Trump actually kind of understood that better than some of the policy elites. I mean, if you notice, he wasn't soft on ISIS, <laughs> right? He said, we're going to bomb the whatever out of them. So he sort of threaded that needle. He didn't run as a Rand Paul. He didn't run as a pure isolationist. He said, we're going to increase defense spending. We're going to be tougher on terrorism than Obama was, but we're going to be more careful on optional interventions. We're going to 
actually, in a way, ask more of our own allies on defense and on commerce. So it's, it's something that was very unfamiliar at the time. And I'm not suggesting that he went back and, you know, investigated the history of it. But I think there was an instinctive American nationalism in his case. It was tapping into something that was older. Hey, he also didn't hesitate to take out Soleimani. I mean, that was a serious action. Exactly. A, a presidential decision. And he was a pretty adamant and strong supporter of Israel. Yeah. No, on a lot of issues, actually, I think in the end, a lot of traditional Republican national security hawks were actually quite happy with him. Go down the list. Defense spending, Israel, China, actually. I mean, you, you know, Iran. Now, obviously, he was always more unpredictable than people would have liked, but it, by no means was he some pure... I mean, he didn't actually dismantle U.S. alliances. He questioned them, but he didn't actually dismantle them. In some cases, you actually had an increase, more U.S. presence in Poland than before Trump. So there were definitely elements that were hardline or hawkish, but there were also elements of really asking first order questions about why are we doing this? You know, I mean, Iraq, he said Iraq was a mistake. He questioned a lot of these institutions. He withdrew the U.S. out of some of them. He questioned the value of U.S. alliances, and that, that certainly got people's attention from the very start. And let's just uh, push that one topic a little stronger concerning Israel. He did use this awful phrase, America first, that harkened back to Charles Lindbergh and, and, I, and his sort of anti-Semitism and, and sort of reluctance to take on Germany. But while he used that phrase, and that was bad and terrible, his support for Israel was pretty resolute in a way that the President Biden is already showing signs of not being as resolute. Am I, is that fair? Absolutely. No, I think Trump was more pro-Israel than, than Obama without question, and he was more pro-Israel than Biden is. Actually, there were some things that Trump did questioning why we couldn't just move to Jerusalem, you know, and, and the U.S. embassy. I mean, it was... it was. Oh, well, people had hesitated to do it for years, yeah, instead yeah. of we want to do it, but then they never did, and he did it. Exactly. So that was typical Trump, which is sort of asking out loud, you know, why, why can't we question these assumptions? I mean, very pro-Israel. Did he win the debate with among Republicans? Has he, has he captured the ground now? Are, are the Bush internationalists in complete retreat? I think it's a little more complicated. I think there's, there's a spectrum. I don't think it's just two groups. You know, I think what he's done is he's definitely changed the conversation on a number of issues. And, and when you win unexpectedly a presidential election, as he did five years ago, you, you know, people notice. So on trade, for example, I think that to be able to win over working class voters in the Rust Belt in a way that Republicans hadn't for years and, and realize that you do it by skipping over the Democrats on trade. I mean, actually, Trump was more protectionist than Hillary Clinton. So I'm not actually convinced that was a a good thing, <laughs> but he did it. And so I, I do wonder if in the future you're going to see a trend or at least a wing of the Republican Party that's more protectionist, that's going to question the free trade conventions of, 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 of the years. We've, we've come to think of the Republican Party as the free trade party, especially since Reagan, let's say. But I mean, Trump certainly turned that on its head. And that's an example where we're going to have to watch because there's powerful pro-free trade forces in the party. And now there's actually I think also a powerful protectionist wing in the party, and they're going to fight it out. That's just one example of where I think he changed the conversation. I want to come back to trade in a minute, but I want to talk about two other issues first, human rights and allies. So let's start with human rights. So you started out by saying conservative nationalism, which President Trump is a potential example of, believes in American national sovereignty. And there was an element of kind of believes in America, believes in the greatness of America. And yet on 
on our values, on issues concerning elections, treatment of minorities, concentration camps in China, President Trump was muted in advocating for American values concerning democracy and freedom in other countries around the world. Is that also an aspect of conservative nationalism that they they just won't stand up for our system of government? I think Trump was unusual in just how explicit he was at times about the fact that, in his view, human rights in other countries just wasn't a top priority. I mean, that is, if you go, again... It wasn't just a go, top priority. It wasn't a priority at all. Well, there were times where, I'm trying to be, maybe I'm bending over backward to be fair to him. There were moments where he spoke out forcefully. I mean, you know, script, in a scripted way, like North Korea, right? Or Iran. And then he would drop it. I mean, he would just completely drop it when, it, when he wanted to talk to them. And, it, and there were moments where he actually praised their internal practices if you recall. So that, yeah. was, that was controversial, obviously. I don't think there's any question about that. To me, the American tradition, even among conservative nationalists, is to say, yes, we value U.S. sovereignty, but we hope that over the long term, democratic self-government, or as the founders would have thought of it, Republican, smaller Republican self-government will spread. So you're at least indicating respect for that hope, right? I mean, Trump is clearly not a human rights guy. I don't think it could be pretended that he is or was. He was more of a realpolitik type, I think, in the sense that he looked around the world and saw, you know, the various leaders, whether they're democratic or undemocratic, almost as if they're in charge of their own real estate and said, you know, can we cut a deal? I mean, he, he approached foreign affairs, it seems to me, as a set of escalation campaigns. And, and this was his history going back decades on everything. You escalate pressure and then you de-escalate and you see if you can cut a deal and you're willing to cut a deal with almost anybody. So he would escalate pressure on the Germans or the Russians or the Taliban, it doesn't matter. He's not really distinguishing, right? And then he would talk to almost anybody with the exception of ISIS. So that was interesting to watch. I mean, it wouldn't be necessarily the case. And if, and if he was challenged about his, you know, dealings with Putin, for instance, he'd say, well, I mean, you, that comment he made about we're killers too. Yeah. Pretty damaging. My point I'm trying to make is you can be a, a full-fledged conservative nationalist who understands that what you're talking about and still stand up in a more positive way for human rights in the world, at least with your rhetoric. And he didn't do that. Well, right. And not only that, the mainstream history of this tradition is that leaders have actually have spoken out for human rights and self-government overseas, even if they've been skeptical that it can be promoted by force. So if you think about some of the most notable, I mean, Lincoln, okay? I mean, you know, let's go to the top. This yeah, is the best let's example. go right to the top. I mean, Lincoln to me is a, is a nationalist in the best sense. It's a civic nationalism. It's not an ethnic nationalism. He is a great American president, truly great, who is in that tradition of, you know, there is such a thing as an American nation which must be preserved. And he's willing, he's willing to pay a price to preserve it. I mean, he, Lincoln vindicates the notion of an American nation state, right? And that's one way to look at the Civil War is that that's what's emerging from it is a more coherent nation state. And it involves, among other things, the vindication of traditional American principles going back to the founding that all men are created equal. He's not going all over the world and crusading for military interventions against the British and the French. And on the contrary, he says, we, we, we can only afford one war at a time. We have to defeat the Confederacy. That's his priority. He actually has to tell his Secretary of State, Seward, initially to knock it off. And eventually Seward gets the message. So I see Lincoln as in that broad American tradition. You know, this is a very morally sophisticated and sensitive proponent of, of popular self-government, 
worldwide, but you, you're not necessarily going to be able to make it happen immediately by force. Allies. So we're in the week after, I guess, President Biden, is he back? He's back from a trip to Europe. And we were talking to another scholar recently who said that it, it wasn't hard to, to rebuild relations with European allies in the wake of President Trump's administration. What is the attitude toward allies among conservative nationalists? Or do you have any respect for allies or engaging with them or not? You know, if you look at public opinion polls among conservatives and Republicans in the U.S., there's actually quite a bit of support for U.S. alliances, even among Trump supporters. Yeah. This was a, this was a stereotype for years throughout his presidency that was just false. If, if you look at Gallup or Pew or Chicago, the average Trump supporter actually said they liked NATO. They supported NATO. But at the same time, they said they liked and supported Trump's foreign policy. So, you know, you have to tease out what are they getting at? Apparently, they liked Trump. They liked what he was doing. They thought he was shaking things up. They didn't object to him trying to get more from U.S. alliances, but they weren't actually calling for completely pulling up the drawbridge and just coming home and abandoning U.S. alliances overseas. So that's, that's a misperception that I, I try to correct in the book. And it would actually be dangerous if, if we concluded that Trump's presidency means that the average Republican voter despises U.S. alliances or something like that. That doesn't seem to be true. And, and just on the math of it, insisting that Germany and France and other European allies meet their commitments with regard to defense spending, it's hard to argue with that. I think it's completely reasonable. I mean, the Germans in particular can be very frustrating. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I, you get a lot of talk about rules-based order. You get Nord Stream 2 with Russia. You get ethical scolding. What you don't get is the promised level of defense preparation. I mean, it's frustrating. It's fr- By the way, it's been frustrating for Democrats. I mean, if they're in talking in private, I mean, whether it's Obama or Biden people, they will say it's frustrating trying to get the Germans to do their share. So let's, uh, we, you mentioned trade in, in some detail before, but I just want to lock that down or get that solidified. With regard to trade with China, did President Trump win the battle among Republicans that protectionist, maybe not protectionist, but the use of tariffs and quotas and other trade restrictions is appropriate in dealing with an adversary like China. I think he definitely won the debate on whether it is possible and, and necessary to use a broad array of unconventional policy tools to push back against China. I think he won that debate. I mean, that's, well, that's over. And not only did he win it within the Republican Party, I think he actually won it within the country. Now, specifically on tariffs, Right, you're going to get the obvious counterargument, which is, and even a lot of Republicans made this argument that that tariff campaign maybe hurt American farmers, for example, as much as it did the Chinese. So, you know, a tariff war specifically has its downside. That's clear, and it's even worse in relation to allies because then you're mutually hurting one another when you should be cooperating against authoritarian adversaries. But I do think. Trump absolutely won the broader argument that it's time to, however you want to phrase it, get tough on China, and not just militarily, but, but economically. We've been talking about President Trump's foreign policy and, and your view of where it fits in, in the history of foreign policy among conservatives and among America in a kind of theoretical, thoughtful way. But isn't foreign policy also very operational and very it requires a certain kind of discipline and coherence and step-by-step management of the various apparatuses 
of the White House, the State Department, the National Security Council, the Department of Defense. And on that score, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of our former colleague here at AI, John Bolton, who went to serve in the Trump administration and wrote a pretty damaging book. Did he in some way undermine the wisdom of his approach in foreign policy by, the, by his lack of discipline in carrying it out? So there's no question he was unpredictable and he didn't have much use for existing beltway procedures. Oh, see, see, see what that's what he's doing there? He's making me out to be the, Very diplomatic. The, 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 what are you going to call me, the striped pants guy? No, I think there is a lot to be said for, look, I mean, Trump clearly was not good at coordinating all of the tools of U.S. power, you know, in a coherent way against a given adversary. That wasn't his strength. His strength, I think, was questioning conventional wisdom. Okay. So, I mean, some of the things that he did probably needed doing. It was as if a human wrecking ball was going through a building and, you know, the whole debate is over, does this building need to be wrecked or what's coming next? But I mean, there's no denying he is a human wrecking ball. That's what he is. So, you know, is he good at fine-tuned diplomatic strategies? No. Or message discipline or any of those and things. Clearly not. Right. Clearly not. What, what he was good at was shaking things up. And, and one of the things that I found left the conversation, I mean, it was as if people were kind of talking past each other because I think a lot of his supporters wanted him to do exactly that. They didn't object. They said, that's why I sent him. Yeah. He's shaking things up. Right. Yeah. You can uh, read these stories ahead. even in the Bolton book, but it just does seem like he kind of shot himself in the foot over and over with just the personnel choices by continually, you know, this early on reverence for the generals that, of course, want to stay in the wars that he says he wants to get out of. So do you think some of some of that was he kind of undercut himself on the personnel front? He absolutely did. And the, the parts of it that are just baffling, and I still don't think we know why. I mean, it was obvious there were a lot of people that, that bowed out from the beginning and said, I don't want anything to do with this guy. But there were actually quite a few that didn't. I mean, there were hundreds of people who could have served if they, if, and, and it would have been best to staff up the State Department with people who were, you know, willing to do the work, but they never did. There were some good people in there who, who did a good job, but, you know, you can't expect, this is another example of what Robert was just talking about, you cannot expect to have in the end a successful foreign policy overall if you can't staff it up properly. It's just not going to happen. And he never did. And there's, to this day, it's sort of a mystery as to why they couldn't staff it up, even with people who never said a word about Trump. I mean, I, to me, that's, that's the most baffling part. So. Whenever I have these conversations about Trump's ascendancy in foreign policy, I always have in the back of my mind George W. Bush's second inaugural. Have you ever read, written about that speech? And is the spirit in that speech been discredited completely by Trump? You're thinking of 2005, a very sweeping. Oh, sweeping. Yeah. The, the... So, so Bush, I mean, I think it was absolutely sincere. Bush was convinced after 9-11 that you would combat al-Qaeda not only by hammering the terrorists, but by this broad freedom agenda in the greater Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, really the whole Muslim world. And that, I mean, if you look at the language of that speech, it's, it's universalistic, it's very ambitious, it's very idealistic, it's almost Wilsonian. Woodrow, I think back to Woodrow Wilson a century ago, except that, you know, Bush obviously didn't have such a fixation on everything has to be multilateral. He, but there was a very muscular idealism. Now, has it been discredited? Look, I think it's no coincidence that the last three presidents from both parties have all rejected it. So Barack Obama ran against that Bush legacy. Donald Trump 
won the Republican nomination running against the Bush legacy on foreign policy. I'll never forget when he said that Iraq was a mistake during one of those early debates. I think it was the fall of 2015. He might have been arguing with Jeb Bush or some other candidate. And it was not the sort of thing you were supposed to say as a top Republican candidate. Didn't seem to hurt him. And he just kept rolling. And now we've got another president, Joe Biden, who he's not exactly in the Bush 43 tradition. So you know, you've had a series of elections where the public has, has voted for candidates who called for nation building at home, who said that they, they oppose optional military interventions overseas, and who, who clearly view the, the Iraq invasion as a mistake. That's what we've had since 2008, every four years. Afghanistan. In the context of things, it's a fairly small investment keeping soldiers there. Can you be a conservative nationalist and Trumpian foreign policy and also be willing to make that investment in Afghanistan? I personally think that we should have left at least a residual presence. I mean, it would make sense. It doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be that expensive. It's not as though the U.S. has been taking heavy casualties. You're in much better shape fending off the Taliban. It wouldn't have to be a lot, you know, it wouldn't have to be a lot of troops, but some minimal presence on the ground, helping with counterterrorism, intelligence, special ops, drones, it's just easier to do. As it is, the Taliban, let's not kid ourselves, the Taliban are a vicious, intractable enemy. They're going to take advantage of this and they're going to, they're going to keep rolling and everybody kind of knows it. It's a brutal situation for Afghan women and girls and civilians, particularly those who helped us. I mean, their lives are in danger. So, yes, it's been a frustrating experience for many years, I think, for a lot of Americans. It obviously didn't live up to the initial hopes. I do think that in the coming years, I'm afraid that we will find that completely walking away was a mistake. It, just as far as how that relates to Trump or conservative nationalism, I mean, Trump clearly had no use for that mission, and he kept trying to get out of it, and he never was able to completely do it, which is an interesting story. But he, it is. you could tell by instinct he wanted to leave. And, and the kept, various people that staffed him yeah. prevented him from doing what he really wanted. That's, that's what it looks like. Yeah, yeah exactly. And he himself. In a way, you could, give, you could credit him for that. Well, and I that do. He, uh, that he, it does listen to, you know, if people keep saying, no, 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 we can't do it, he might say, well, maybe I can't do it. Well, that's actually what I thought back in 2017, 2018, where I think it was McMaster, really, and a number of others who did persuade him, however reluctantly, that it was worth trying, you know, yeah. to stick it out. But. In any case, I, yeah, I don't really think the measure is what would Trump say or do in the end. I mean, I don't personally sit around asking myself, gee, what would Trump do? You know, yeah, WWTD. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's make <laughs> sure to do that thing. to go that way, but, but <laughs> okay. Know, I mean, he's a, you know, he, he's, a, he's a major force. He, he is a, he's a U.S. president, former U.S. president yeah. who's a major force. And, you know, he obviously has this hold over the emotions of a lot of voters. He's absolutely had a huge impact. But that's not my first thought on U.S. foreign policy. I think there's a broader tradition that has some variety to it. And that's one of the things worth... I think this conservative nationalist tradition has more or less assertive versions. Yes. It has more or less isolationist versions. It has more or less honorable versions, right? There are plenty of people in that tradition who put a high emphasis on human rights or who have exceptional personal character. Or, you know, I mean, so you have to look at the individuals. I mean, Robert Taft was not and Nazi sympathizer. You know, he was wrong. <laughs> he just got it wrong. Right. He thought that the U.S. would be better off not intervening in World War II. He was mistaken, but he was actually a very principled man. He was a kind of Midwestern libertarian who, who worried that if the U.S. was meddling all over the place, that its own 
limited government at home would eventually be eroded. You know, he's not 100% wrong about that. It's just that at that moment, you needed to stand up and fight the Nazis. Speaking about holds on people, again, I'm sorry to keep coming back to President Trump, but his impact on American foreign policy is fascinating to me. What is it with Russia? Hmm. Why a conservative nationalist looking out for American national interests would be countering Putin and Russia just the way they were countering China, wouldn't they? And why not? Why didn't he? So, that, yeah, Russia was definitely one of the more interesting debates over the last four or five years. And I hope we talk a little bit about Biden by comparison. Yeah, that, sure that's, we'll, we'll do that next. Yeah, good. So, I mean, for lots of reasons, obviously, there was just this extreme concern about Trump and Russia, right, with the press, the way it was covered from the very start. His actual policy on Russia was kind of an odd mix. On the one hand, as I suggested, the policy itself on the ground was often pretty hard line in terms of sanctions, U.S. bolstering military presence in Eastern Europe, trying to get other European allies to do the same thing. I mean, you even had cases of run-ins with, I think, Russian mercenaries in Syria where the U.S. special operations killed them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Putin didn't exactly want to advertise that, but, you know, it was, it was pretty assertive. And they, and they, they did sanctions. Sanctions, repeated sanctions. Yeah. Now, a lot of this was, was imposed by Congress as well. So you had congressional Republicans and Democrats insisting on yeah. assertive sanctions. It became very much caught up in kind of the meat grinder of party politics, right? I mean, I remember going to the airport before the shutdown for years and CNN, it was all about Russia, just constantly about Russia. So that, that became a domestic issue inside the US. Trump himself, I mean, it was no secret. He said from the start, I would like to work with Vladimir Putin. It wasn't like some private thought. He, he ran on it. He said openly, I don't see why we can't work with Russia. He ran and won on that platform. That's something. So, you know, he clearly personally wanted better relations with Putin's Russia. He was never really able to pull it off for all kinds of reasons. And it's probably for the best, <laughs> right? So there were plenty of people right around. If you look at the, his team, every single one of them had a record of being hardline on Russia. Even the most pro-Trump people Mike Pompeo had a record of being hardline on Russia, right? And he, there was not much daylight between Pompeo and Trump during the time that Pompeo was at state. But, but Pompeo has a record of being hardline on, on Putin. So that was just a difference between Trump on the one hand and pretty much every other leading Republican on the other. You know, he did, Trump did manage to kind of crack open this discussion of, well, what exactly should be our policy on Russia? Is it inconceivable that we might have better relations with Russia someday, right? And oddly enough, now that's been taken up by progressives and others. Yeah, it was, it was strange. It was just a strange spectacle that like a lot of things in the Trump years at the level of, let's say, cable news reporting didn't have much to do with the reality of it. It was just almost an hysterical level, to, to my mind, of debate and controversy and scandal when at the heart of it, the, the policy in a lot of ways was actually pretty tough. So let's turn to President Biden. We had a dialogue at an AEI event where Corey Shockey, the head of the foreign defense team, challenged Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, on Afghanistan, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And he, speaking to a largely Republican crowd, defended it because it was a continuation of President Trump's policies. And what about that? Is, is, is President Biden going to do more things like Donald Trump than, than he wants to admit? And of course, you're going to continue to see this, which is 
if Democrats under Biden want to take a given route, they'll always be able to point to something Trump did and say, but wait a second, Trump was for this. Yeah. So what's your problem? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's going to be true on, on so many things. I think that that's worth taking with a grain of salt. But right. So look, I think in some ways, Biden, for all the shifts in tone, and there are some very important shifts in substance too, there is some continuity with Trump. There really is. I mean, there's you don't see the Biden team on trade eager to reconstitute any big multilateral free trade agreements. I actually wish they would go back and try to reconstitute TPP, but I don't see that happening. They seem to be scared of their own shadow on trade. That's one example. Afghanistan, absolutely. I mean, they have reached the conclusion that if a Republican president is for withdrawing from Afghanistan, and they know the left is all for it. I mean, the average Democrat thinks we should be gone from Afghanistan the day before yesterday. So you add it up, and I think the politics and the conviction and the policy direction all move in the same direction, which is we're leaving. So that's a kind of Trumpish element. I, I actually am struck by how many Democratic Party progressives and, and even sort of center-left moderates or liberals liked elements of Trump's foreign policy, the skepticism about military intervention, the questioning of America's military role in the world. They would often say, well, obviously, you know, he's horrible, but he's actually right on this or he's right on that. And so Afghanistan is, is one of those Trumpish elements, and it's not the only one. One difference may be Israel. Yeah. So, so the differences are, you're, you're going to see more of a dialing back to, I think, the Obama approach in some ways on, for example, Israel, on Iran. I mean, clearly the Biden team wants to reconstitute the nuclear arms deal with Iran. So that's kind of, in some ways, in some ways it's, a, it's a third Obama term, particularly if you look at the personnel, it's mostly Obama people. So it's a mix of some continuity with Trump, some going back to the Obama legacy. And the Obama legacy was, you know, not especially pro-Israel. So I think that Biden is, is not especially pro-Israel. Not only that, there's a wing of the Democratic Party in Congress and around the country that, if anything, has become more and more pro-Palestinian over time, if you want to put it that way, that there's, there's a real internal debate among Democrats now that did not exist to the same extent 10 or 20 years ago. Now, I want to ask you about your John Foster Dulles book and your view of sort of American political views and the public's perception of president's foreign policy. So I don't know whether you know much about this because you don't write, I don't think, I don't know if you've written about it, but in that conflict over Israel, is there a chance of the strong Israeli supporters within the Democratic Party leaving the Democratic Party because it's become so anti-Israel? Today, you mean? Today. I mean, I think you're talking about probably a small number of people. Yeah, it's not it, that big. You know, it's not a major political force. Right. I don't think it's a huge faction. It, it might be important in terms of public debate, articles written. History. History. The Democratic Party had always been. Harry Truman, yeah. Robert Kennedy, very strong Israel, but now not so much. Yeah. No, I think there's a, there is a shift. And Republicans have only become more and more kind of solid on that issue. I, I mean, I imagine in 2024, whatever Republican wins the nomination is going to be solidly pro-Israel and is going to campaign on that. I think I've been saying Dulles, and I meant to say Henry Cabot Lodge. Hmm. Did I do that twice? Okay. Okay. I want to ask you about Henry Cabot Lodge. Why are you writing a book about him? <laughs> so I know the difference between Dulles and Henry Cabot Lodge. Yeah. And it's so Vaguely. I'm interested in Lodge Sr. actually, because he's the leading Republican voice in the Senate on foreign policy from really the 1890s up until early 20, 1920s. 
And he's not only on foreign policy, but on a lot of other issues. He's, he's just a major figure in the Senate. And it's an interesting period because it's a lot like the period we're living through now. There's populism, there's progressivism, there's kind of great power competition, there's antitrust feeling. It's the way that foreign policy relates to domestic affairs and the way that it's bound up with controversies between the parties and within them. And I just, I think he's an interesting figure for that reason. And of course, he led the opposition to Wilson's League of Nations. But one of the things that not a lot of people know is Lodge actually wanted an early version of NATO. He was no, by no means an isolationist. He wanted an alliance with Britain and France after World War I. He wanted the U.S. to continue to be committed to West European security against any new German threat. But Wilson wouldn't agree to that. Wilson wanted the entire cake, and he wouldn't take half a loaf. So what he got was nothing. But he's kind of a hero. You're talking about Lodge. Lodge. I, I actually think he's interesting. Yeah, I mean, he was, he's highly intelligent, politically tactful or skillful, I should say. Not always tactful. <laughs> He's impressive. He was T Theodore Roosevelt's best friend. I mean, they were, he was a major influence on uh, Roosevelt's foreign policy. He's a staunch Republican, Lodge is, and he breaks with Roosevelt in 1912, but it doesn't break their friendship. They remain friends throughout that time. When's the book going to be done? Well, I'm about, what, about a third of the way, almost half of the way through it. So I'm, I'm having fun. I'm working my way through it. And uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be too much longer, but it is a book, so these things do take time. <laughs> I think we've covered a lot of ground in a short time. Colin is a great guest. I yeah. mean, he just bats him out of the park. <laughs> or you can get the next question ready. He's answered True. it already. Well, I mean, I know we're trying to not only talk about Trump, but it is so interesting. But I'm curious if you think there's any other Republicans on the scene, assuming that Trump won't run again, which we don't know is true that could kind of assemble that same coalition of different factions of the Republican Party on foreign policy? Sure. Look, I think my guess at the moment is if Trump was to run for the nomination today, he would win, right? I think that's what it looks like. But three years from now, who knows? So if you put aside that gigantic Trump factor, and if you say somebody else wins, you look at the top candidates. I mean, whether it's a Pence or a Cotton or a Haley, there's a long list of people. Maybe on foreign policy, somebody like a Josh Hawley is a little more non-interventionist, not quite to the same extent as a Rand Paul. But there's a range of possibilities there. I don't think Rand Paul is going to be the nominee. I'll just say that. He would be kind of one end of the spectrum. But I think in the end, foreign policy is not the top priority of most voters. So even though it's important, I think in either party, once you win the nomination, if you think about it, I mean, Biden ran against some very dovish candidates, right? And in the end, he's got the support of most Democrats because Foreign policy isn't really the top priority. As long as he doesn't disrespect the core convictions of most of his supporters, he'll be fine. This happened with Obama. It happened with Trump. There continues to be a range of opinion, but I think most voters, most Republican voters will probably rally around the nominee in 24, whoever that is. And so that person's, what makes it interesting is that person's got some leeway. If they want, they can, they can stand up and say, look, we need to increase defense spending. We need to be tough on Russia. We need to work with U.S. allies. They can, they can take a variety of, of positions they can choose because of the fact that it isn't the top priority. What I don't think they're going to be able to do is to pretend that the last 10 years didn't happen. I mean, they're going to have to factor in the Trump era and, and show some respect for the voters. But they, they may end up looking very different from Trump in the end when it comes to both style, leadership style, as well as specifics. Do you ever worry that a very, very, very strong anti-China trade policy and economic policy will harm American 
consumers and the American economy? So my main concern over the last few years has, has been kind of on the other side, that we haven't, that we still haven't pulled together enough of a coordinated, serious, forceful, whole of government approach, whatever you want to call it, to counteracting China. I mean, this is, this is the only peer competitor of the United States right now, and they are dead serious. They have some impressive capabilities. I'm not saying they're 10 feet tall, but they're strong. I mean, they are, they are, this is a long-term competition. And I'm, I'm still not convinced even now that we, we're doing exactly what we need to do. So that's, that would be my main concern. Now, is it possible in the after? So, so just to answer it, is, is you're not concerned about it at all, that, that the, the damage to consumers, to our economy, to businesses in the United States of reducing the extent of trade, the extent of opportunity to profit from the huge market in China is just not worth worrying about. I don't want to deny that there's trade-offs or costs, but I think on balance... You have to be willing to pay a price for, for bigger priorities. So, for example, do I worry that Disney might lose some business from a hard line on China? No, I don't worry about Disney. Or Procter I mean, & Gamble. <laughs> you know, I mean, year. Disney, can, Disney will be fine. You know? Do you think that the voters that are very supportive of being tough on China realize that there are those trade-offs? You know, I was surprised during the Trump years that even some of his core supporters and, you know, farmers out in the plains or Midwest would actually say... I'm perfectly, I know, I know on a personal level how costly this is, but I support the president. I completely agree with that. I mean, that was really striking. all the time. Yeah. And it was remarkable because far, the farm economy benefits a lot. Well, what else? What haven't we asked you that you want to say that is just staring us in the face and Phoebe and I aren't smart enough to ask you about? <laughs> well, I think you guys are plenty smart, but, <laughs> but I'll just say, you know, one theme I hit in the book, and I'll just mention it now, is that. The sweet spot among Republican voters on foreign policy and national security is actually this middle group that are sort of hard line. They're not isolationists on the one hand, and they're not really internationalists on the other. And I don't think the Democrats have the same constituency. These people might have been Democrats 75 or 100 years ago, but they're, they're Republican today. It's, it tends to be more rural or small town, more working class, heartland voters who, for example, want a hard line against terrorists and against China and a Their number of adversaries. Their children serve in the military. Their children disproportionately serve in the military. So they, they have clearly gotten tired of some of these missions overseas. I mean, there is some of that. And I've seen that personally. I live out in rural Virginia and I, I hear about it from, you know, some of the local guys driving pickup trucks that say, don't tread on me. But they are not doves, right? They're not, I mean, when you say don't tread on me, that can go in one of two directions. It can be either leave me alone. I just would like to manage my own business. But yeah, there's a threat there. There's a warning. There is a kind of um, do, combativeness yeah. to it. So it's important for, actually, I would honestly say for foreign actors like China to understand that. I mean, if I had a message for the Chinese, I would say, don't, don't underestimate this crowd. Because, you know, once they get riled up, I mean, this is a serious problem, going to be a serious problem for the Chinese. I think that's actually where things are headed. That constituency, once it's convinced that it's ready to combat a foreign adversary, is pretty relentless. If you look at the American experience in World War II or the Cold War or the War on Terror, it's not about rules-based liberal world order for that group, that middle group, that hardline group. Mm -hmm. It's about sinking your teeth into enemies of the United States. And once you're convinced that there's an enemy, you're going to sink your teeth into them. And I think that's what the Chinese have unintentionally done. That's something that actually the Chinese Communist Party needs to be aware of. Well, that's a good way to end. I think that's a very interesting point. It's, it reminds me of the sort of lumbering giant that is the United States. Exactly. 
Thank you very much. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.